He's been a professional coach since the turn of the century, working with English clubs such as London Irish, Newcastle Falcons, Bath and the Worcester Warriors. He's also spent four years as Springbok assistant coach when they rose to number one in the world in 2009, while he has also coached Western Province, the Sharks and the Kobe Steelers in Japan. He's currently head coach of the USA national team. It's fair to say that there probably isn't a coach in the world who has experienced such a wide variety of cultures in his career than today's Maverick Sports podcast guest, Gary Gold. Welcome, Gary. Thanks, Craig. Very good to be here, and thanks for the invitation. Ah, great to have you. And uh, you're just back. Are you refreshed from the World Cup? Yeah, refreshed from the World Cup. Um, fantastic occasion, as I'm sure the whole of <laughs> South Africa will attest to. Um, and yeah, and it's starting, um, starting work next week back in the States. So where to now for American rugby? Obviously, the results, perhaps. Let's, let's just go back to the World Cup. How much preparation time did you have? I mean, I know that we all know now that the Springboks had 11 or 12 weeks before the World Cup and then six weeks in, in, in Japan. Did you have anything like that luxury? No, no, not as much as that. But I think, to be fair, by US standards in, in previous World Cups, we really did put in a big effort to, to give ourselves some form of a chance. We were, we were together for, for about a month before we had to play a competition called the PNC, um, and the PNC is Pacific Nations Cup, and that included ourselves, Tonga, Fiji, Samoa, Japan, and Canada. Um, and we played um, we played one of those tests in in the US, and then we played two down in in Fiji as preparation. Um, in hindsight, now when we look back at it, um, and and I think we knew this all all along. We were, we were always going to go into the World Cup a little bit undercooked, particularly the you know, considering the opposition that we had to play against. But, it, you know, from a USA standpoint, you know, if you consider it to World Cups before that, we, we had a, a, a better preparation, but always could, have, always could have gone well. Yeah, I mean, and you had a tough group as well. I mean, it wasn't exactly like you, 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 it was almost a pool of death. I mean, England and France, top teams, and then uh, Tonga, was it as well? Um, and Argentina. And Argentina. Yeah. So, I mean... Yeah, what was your goal going into the World Cup when you looked at the group on paper? I mean, realistically, I suppose Tonga was the one game you probably wanted to win and maybe do well in one other. Yeah, Craig, I mean, we, we had a... Uh, instead of setting ourselves goals in terms of games that we would win or um, obviously you go out to play every single game to win and you prepare accordingly. And, you know, that was pretty much our mantra going into this Rugby World Cup. You know, I didn't necessarily want to ever say that we were going to target one game because what did that mean about the other games you know mm-hmm. so in the time that we had the preparation and 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 it's really important you know that we we don't find this as an excuse is that is that you know we did actually have a bit of time for preparation the interesting thing is is by the time we got our group into preparation it's really interesting to see how a, a mixed bag of where our players were coming from you know some were playing mlr rugby some were playing university rugby in america and some were playing top level rugby in europe so it was it was quite a, a very wide variance of where the players were coming from, and and that was really something that was was very difficult for us to deal with, and is going to be something that we have to we're going to have to address as USA Rugby going forward for the next four years. But um, in saying that, I mean we we wanted to be competitive in every game, and and I think for large periods of every game we were competitive. Um, but yeah, our our goal, if I'm brutally honest with you, was to go in there, and and, and I don't think a lot of people knew this, but if teams did come third in their pool, they actually qualified for the next Rugby yeah. World Cup. So we, we set our standards really high, and I think you need to do that. I mean, I think you need to really set the standards high, and if you fall a little bit short, it's still by, by USA Rugby standards would have been pretty satisfactory. But our goal was to try, try and qualify if we could have, and unfortunately we just fell short of that. I mean, you come from 
Yeah, you've coached the Sharks and you've coached all these English clubs are 100% professionals. You've been with the Springbok setup, which of course is 100% professionals. You come to a USA team that has some, as you say, university players, I suppose semi-professional at best. You've got some hardened professionals from Europe. Does it remind you of your early coaching days a little bit, like, you know, oh, very much that so. mixture? <laughs> very much so. Very much so. And that's where the challenge lies. That's the part that I'm, I am actually enjoying. It's exciting. I mean, um, I pretty much went on board with the USA in, 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 I, I attended the November term 2017. Um, I, I, I wasn't coaching them yet. Well, I'd been appointed, but I wasn't actually coaching the team then. Was that John Mitchell's last tour? Uh, that, John had actually already left and they, right. they had a caretaker okay. who was, who, who was, um, overseeing um, that team. And I, I, I shadowed them for two weeks. They were in Germany and Georgia. And then I, I had to finish off at, at Worcester at the time. Um, and I remember I, my, my first test was the, the ARC, the American Rugby Championship at the beginning of 2018, where we had to play Argentina in the first game. We had a 10-day build up to that. And that's when I really got a shock, is that when we went into camp, I realized that 50% of the squad hadn't picked up a rugby ball since that last game against Georgia in the last weekend of November. And that was something that we set about almost immediately to, to, try, and, to try and rectify. And we, we were given uh, a bit of aid with that with, with the advent of the MLR, which happened mm. to also start at the Major League Rugby, which started at the beginning of 2018. So at least we got our, our, our guys that were in the, in the national squad, we at least got them into a rugby environment. Yeah. Now, unfortunately... You know, at that stage, you know, they, they weren't able to be paid as much as, you know, or, or paid enough to be able to live. So many of them were still training on a Tuesday and a Thursday night but, and, and then playing on a Saturday. But it, it, it was still better than nothing. It was still better than not having any rugby. And, and so that's really where our development pathway is at the moment now. You know, MLR is moving into its third year now. Um, as USA Rugby, we're trying to work very closely in tandem to them to, to be able to offer our players a professional environment and and an environment where hopefully if there's enough money they can they can actually do that professionally and do it do it full time and 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 you 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 will see a you will see a big jump i mean we saw that in 2018 i mean mm. after that mlr season we had we had a fantastic year we won 10 out of our 12 tests that year and it was definitely down to the fact that the players were playing more regular rugby yeah um, so that that's one of the many challenges that we've got in the us and and it's exciting times it's exciting times because they are areas of the game where you can see quite an upturn in, 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 the, in the change of the player quite quickly. It will plateau, mm. obviously, but it, uh, um, it is certainly an area where you can see a grave improvement quite quickly. What's the MLR structure? I mean, how many clubs are there? And, and uh, it's such a big country, America. So how do they sort of work that structure? So they're still in their infancy at the moment now, and they're trying to find their way. To give you a, a, an easier, brief answer, that the model is on the Major League Soccer model. Right. Uh, that's the model that they want to go with, which which in, in brief is really um, they want to open up a franchise type of system. So Major League Rugby started initially with eight teams. It then grew to 10 teams last year. And this year it'll move to 12 teams. I think the idea is for them to ultimately get to the same numbers what you've got in the NFL, which is around about 18 teams. Mm. And then they'll split the country into two conferences, a West Conference and an East Conference. Um, so at the moment it's, it's at 12. Um, it's spread across the country. Obviously, there's lots of geographical problems around the weather because, you know, in July, uh, be upon in January and February around the east coast, it's almost impossible to play rugby. Yeah. So um, they're working out those logistics, but it's it's based on that very small salary cap, salary cap of only four hundred fifty thousand dollars for the whole squad for an entire squad. Um, and the reason behind that is because of the business model. You know, they don't want the business model to fail. You know, yeah. they don't they don't want one. Um, 
excuse the pun, maverick investor <laughs> to come out and, you know, spend a, an, a, an absolute fortune of money and in doing so, two years later, go bankrupt because he doesn't want to lose a million dollars. Yeah, every and you can't have one sort of super rich club and, and, no. and nine other poor no. clubs, essentially. You know, and, and they're, they're good with regulating it. You know, they're very good in the state with regulating it. So, um, yeah, look, I mean, that in tandem with a project that we're trying to do from USA Rugby, where's Whereas we're trying to work with them and say, well, if you've got an MLR and you've got a $450,000 um, salary cap, would you allow marquee players who are USA qualified that we will pay for? Yeah. You know, and, that, and, and, and they are considering that. And then, then all you're really doing is you're advancing American yeah, so you uh, have eligible players. Eight or ten Eagles players spread around the franchise. Yeah, which, which we would pay for. Yeah, USA which, Rugby would yeah. pay for. So the club get the player for free, basically. And he's, and he's a good enough player because he's at international level. So mm. then the club feel that they, you know, they've got a, a buy-in from, from the Eagles, from USA Rugby. And hopefully they can then get on and do what they want to do, which is which is try and win a major league rugby competition. There's this feeling out there that the USA is the big sort of untapped market for rugby, and I'm I'm not 100 convinced considering the big sports that are already in place and they've got 100 years of professional history. You think of the NFL, baseball, whatever. Yes. Um, so how does rugby, which is essentially I suppose a collegiate sport, a very niche sport in America, um, break into that market? Is it really this big untapped market, or do you think? That's maybe a bit overstated. I think it's overstated at the moment. It's very e- the easy way for me to try and explain that to yourself and the listeners is um, <clears throat> there's two types of sports that work in the US. There's the hugely professional sports that has quite literally billions of dollars behind that because, as you well know, Craig, driven by television rights. Mm-hmm. So your NFL, your NBAs, your Major League Baseball, and your hockey. Yeah. Those are the big professional sports. Those are the sports that at any one NFL game – you'll get comfortably 75,000 people at a stadium, television rights, and uh, the clubs are well well um, financed from that point of view. And then you've got the other side of the scale, which is Olympic sports, which are very, very important in the US, in the landscape of USA Rugby. Obviously, that's where Sevens falls in. Yep. So USA, US sports from the USOC are funded, and professional sports are funded. And then you have sports like rugby that fall between the crack, rugby 15s, hmm. where there, there's just no funding. Yeah. And and. And, and no market, really. And not a huge market. Yeah. I mean, actually, in, in the pure numbers, the market is actually quite big. Oh, really? But because it's spread so far and wide, there isn't one place. There's not one place that's like a rugby state. Mm. Like Texas is not a rugby state, and if we played there, we'd get 100,000 people in Houston. It's not work, it doesn't work like that. When you add the numbers up, it's still well over 300,000 people playing rugby across yeah, America. Big. It's a lot of numbers. It's, a, that's it's on par with New Zealand almost. Yeah, oh, yeah. but it's, it's far and wide. It's so spread out so that it's, it's tidbits all over the show. So, so I mean, it's not, it's not a lost cause, but it's, it's, it's interesting that you ask the question because the answer really lies in the fact that the 15s, men's 15s program, just doesn't have a lot of money. Mm. We, don't have, we don't have an income stream that can afford us, for example, to contract our best 25 players. Yeah. You know, or to have a fully fledged junior academy. You know, that's another big problem they've got in, in the States. You touched on it because it's such a strong collegiate sport and the NCAA control the, the college game so strongly. The college game has to be, by law in the States, 100% amateur. Yeah. And getting an education is critically important in America, as mm. it should be anywhere else in the world. And so if you're playing rugby at university, that's all you're doing playing rugby at university. There's no way USA Rugby can get their hands yeah. on anybody at that stage. There's not really a pathway into pro league. Either. Not until they graduate. Yeah. Not until they graduate. And then inevitably they're going to graduate at the age of 22, 23. 
And by that stage, you would argue, well, we really needed our hands on them at 15 and 16 to develop their skills. Mm. So um, it's, it's a challenge. It's not an insurmountable challenge, but it is a challenge. Is there any high school rugby in, in America? There is. There is. There's good, good high school rugby in America. But again, it's, it's sparse. It's, it's spread out. You know, there's, there's pockets within states that are, you know, in the Colorado area, for example. I mean, there's a, there's a pocket up by Boulder and Lafayette and that area where there's a, there's a handful of pretty good high schools and, you know, their, their league is competitive, but there's only four or five of them that play against each other every year. But they love it. And yeah. is the demographic of the average U.S. player? I mean, we've seen a lot of Pacific Islanders in the in the USA team. Is, is it immigrants? Is it a sort of a, a, a Pacific Island-driven sport, even at at club level or, or the rugby the MSL level? the the Pacific The Pacific Island um, folk moved, um, emigrated really to the states to the West Coast quite substantially over a number of years over the sixties and seventies. So. There's a huge island population on the West Coast, you know. Bel- uh, clubs like Belmont Shore, well-known rugby clubs over there, are, are very, very, um, um, you know, supported by the island folk and, you know, Tongans and Samoans and Fijians who have moved over to the States. Um, but I'd say the national team is probably a, a third in island population and, and, and many, many of the guys that we've got playing for us are, were actually born in the States, even, may, even if it was to immigrant parents. I mean, then I'd say another third are just general foreigners, South Africans, Kiwis, Aussies, mm-hmm. and we've got quite a lot of Irish guys, um, obviously, as you yeah. know, the connection from Ireland. And then and then we've got probably a third of born and bred American players. Now. Okay, so it's kind of interesting demographic. And then the other fallacy maybe is that, well, because NFL and college football, American football is so strong, there must be a lot of uh, good players who don't cut it at that league that could come into rugby and just automatically be great rugby players, which I'm sure it's not quite that simple. No, it isn't. It, it isn't really. I mean... Let's distinguish between the athlete and the player. Yeah. There are some ridiculously talented athletes. I mean, the athlete is not a problem. Yeah. Um, they're, they're crawling out of the woodwork. The player is a problem. You know, to have a guy who's 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 been a wide receiver and has got incredible pace in NFL is you know is one thing, but you know he's never passed the ball backwards in his life, and mm. you know he's never had to make a a decision making situation with a three on two in front of him. So. His ability, his ability to transform into the game of rugby has been difficult. He's never, he's never dealt with a, a, a ruck, for example, or a tackle and yeah. get up onto your feet and steal again. So it's that transfer that's been difficult. So there is a group, there is a group in USA rugby that um, spend a lot of time trying to um, identify um, highly talented sportsmen, p- particularly basketball players and football players, who have had exposure to rugby at a high school level but then we're so good in that in basketball and football, went on to potentially try and make it in the major leagues. And then if they didn't, we're, gonna, we're trying to um, identify them. Interestingly enough, to answer your question as well, Craig, is that I think basketball is a massive sport really? where there's a huge amount of potential. I suppose the height factor for forwards. And, well, you know. the height, the agility, the ability to understand space, the ball skills, because you, you, you've got a ball in your hands. Um, there, there you do have to play into space. You have to appreciate space. You have to pass into space. Wow, never so, considered basketball. Yeah, really. and, and, and interestingly enough, on a small court, I'll be upon, on a small court with such big players, there's a, quite a strong level of physicality. Mm. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of physicality in the air when they're blocking and when they're getting up. And they're strong guys, and you know their 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 strength and conditioning programs are very impressive. I mean, if you consider a six foot nine guy who's probably going to be one hundred and ten to one hundred and fifteen kilograms and moving on a basketball court, 
the pressure that go goes through his ankles, for example. Mm. You know, they're very well conditioned as athletes. And they're explosive, generally. And they're very explosive. You know, so those are the type of guys. And, and, and it's an endurance sport mm. where football is a stop-start stop, sport as well. So that's another big thing for footballers. You know, you get these supremely strong, massive athletes coming into it. And five minutes after ball in play, you know, they, they blow him because they haven't had to have ball in play for so long. Whereas the basketball guys do understand endurance. You know, they, mm. they will go, they run a lot. Um, so, so that it's interest. It's all part of the challenges. It's all part of the fun that we've got lying but, ahead. But it sounds good. How, how many more years are you contracted there, and what's your sort of so time I, frame? So I'm, I'm very privileged. I've got another four years. You know, to so go, to the next World Cup. To the next World Cup. Yeah. To 2023. Yeah. And 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 what kind of international program do you have? Are there some? I mean, I know you'll probably play the Pacific Nations Cup, and you'll play those teams. Any tier one nations that? Uh, on the horizon that you've got? Well, this is the big challenge. I mean, we, we go to Los Angeles next week where we've got a wrap-up with World Rugby, um, all the Tier 2 teams, as they like to call us. Yeah. And, I mean, I don't uh, never know quite what that distinction is and where it comes because, I mean, Argentina, <laughs> for instance, ranked at about 10 in the world now. Should be a Tier 2 nation yeah. purely on ranking, but they're not. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure how they, they mm. uh, differentiate that. But yeah, we are Tier 2. So we've got a Tier 2 conference there and and um, that, that's where those questions will be answered. Um, we, we will find out. Um, most certainly high on the agenda was playing a lot more Tier 1 countries. Um, the idea would be, you know, realistically, because you've got to make it worthwhile for the Tier 1s, and we understand that. Realistically, is in, in, in the July window and in the November window, it would be ideal if, if Tier 2 teams could at least play one Tier 1 team in each one of those. Mm. So we've got, our, we've got our American Rugby Championship that, that – we have every year, which is the equivalent, the America's version of Six Nations. Um, and, and that's a competition growing in strength. Argentina are obviously very good. Uruguay have had a fantastic World yeah, Cup and they've improved. Um, Canada are on the up. You know, they are obviously were a very good rugby nation. have had a little bit of a dip lately, but they, they're going to improve. And even a team like Brazil, I mean, have, have really improved in leaps and bounds. Mm. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's not tier one rugby, and we must be honest about that. Um, and we do need that kind of competition. But, you know, at this moment in time, my understanding is that I think we play Italy in July next year. So, and then we're playing a French Barbarians team. So, you know, even if we can, even if we can be playing the team, a, a team of the likes of a Maoris or mm. French Barbarians, and you're going to get guys who or are South playing, Africa A even. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. You know, teams who are playing regular super rugby or top league rugby, mm. or then at least you're getting a better quality of player, which is just going to test us. And, and only do us the world of good. And getting some of your, if, if that can't work, well, I mean, one or two games a year is great, but getting your, your leading players into top clubs around the world, I suppose that will help in terms of their, their game awareness, their skills, their fitness, and then getting them back to Ab you. Absolutely. But it's interesting because it's an interesting contradiction if you think about it, because tier one countries, let's take New Zealand, South Africa, and Australia, for example, the biggest debate in tier one countries over the last 10 years comfortably has been retaining your players at home. Yeah. Because the data will tell you that, you know, the more your homegrown players are playing at home, so New Zealand, for example, where you cannot play for New Zealand yeah. unless you're playing uh, Super Rugby for New Zealand, they've believed, and, and it's proved them right, that if you play rugby in New Zealand, then you're going to play for the All Blacks, and that's the only way you can be selected for All Blacks because that's the best thing for the All Blacks. We've got a completely different situation because, in fact, we – as you've just alluded to, we really need our top players playing at the highest level. So whilst I'm all for supporting MLR, and I, and, and I really, you know, I will continue to support MLR because the first prize would be that the MLR starts becoming such a powerful competition that it's worthwhile our players playing there. But until that happens, 
you know, we need our AJ McGinty's and our Paul CK's and our Bryce Campbell's of the world playing premiership rugby or playing top 14 rugby yeah. so they can get that exposure. So uh, yeah, it's, it's, an it's, a, yeah. it's a slight contradiction mm. in many ways, you know. And, you know, this, this Rugby World Cup, we drew players from 14 different rugby competitions. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty hard to amalgamate in a month. Yeah. I mean, I know you had the Pacific Nations Cup, but even so. So, yeah. So, the, so yeah. the group of the group of 31 players that we took to Rugby World Cup ha- are playing in 14 different competitions. Anything from a collegiate league in the United States to Ruben de Haas playing Curry Cup yeah. to uh, Pro D Deux in, in France. So yeah. Amazing. Quite a mixed bag. Now, World Cup quickly, just uh, with your South African cap on, you were the Springbok assistant coach for very four uh, four years and some successful years in that. How did you feel watching the box go all the way? What was uh, what was your take, first of all, on you know their performances and um, you know the way they sort of seemed to peak towards the final? I think it was just, I, I think it was absolutely outstanding what happened. I mean, I almost feel that you could see the writing on the wall. I mean, we, we were in... We were in Halifax, of all places, in Canada last year, playing um, Canada in that in that final June game when Rossi was appointed. And I have no idea why somebody tracked me down. Maybe it was because of our friendship and the time we spent together. And uh, I remember saying then, you know, they said, you know, Rossi's been offered a six-year contract. And I said, well, it's the best thing that's ever happened to Sylvain Rugby. You know, and, um, I, you know, I genuinely believe that. I'm not, and I'm not saying now because we won a World Cup. Is you, you just knew that under his tutelage, you know, things were... They were going to be particularly well organized. The players were going to know where they stood, um, and you can just see slowly and surely, you know, Rossi has uh, has uh, waved his wand, so as to speak, mm. you know. And um, you know, I think it's not only the fact that you know we played good rugby. I think we were technically and tactically smarter than everybody else we play against. I, I think the important thing, and we we under underestimate the power of this in in the modern day, is I think the group were a happy group. Yeah, they looked like it a looked really like happy a group. You know, and they looked like they went out to play for each other. And, you know, um, Rusty was the first one to admit that, you know, uh, we had a little bit of luck. You yeah. know, um, you need and, a bit of and luck. And you need a little yeah. bit of luck, you know. England, on the other hand, didn't have some luck with losing Carl Sinclair. Who knows what would have happened if they didn't lose him. But you need a bit of luck. Everybody, everybody who's who's been in the game as long as, as, as a guy like Rusty has will be honest about that. And I commend him for, I really commend him for coming out and being as humble and as honest about that. But my word, we took advantage of the luck we got, you yeah. know? and that and that's something you do have to you yeah. do have to do. No. And, and I just feel that you know, you know, as to your point, I I think technically and tactically we we very quietly went about our job very clinically, and I think we outthought the opposition. Yeah, it looked that well. Certainly, the final looked that way, and we unpacked it a few weeks ago with Zelling Null, who I know has done a bit of work with you at USA Rugby. But now, uh, there's always this this four year cycle and teams build. And I was just wondering about this this morning. Maybe in some ways the two-year cycle worked, and I and I ask you this: Rossi had two years. Let's call it twenty months. In some ways, maybe four years. You, you've got a plan, but some players maybe towards the the back end of that four years are maybe losing some form or have got a little bit older, and they're not quite where you thought they would be as a coach when you started your four-year cycle. But you stick to them because you kind of feel that it's been part of the plan. So maybe in in some sort of weird way the two-year cycle worked in his favor because everyone peaked everyone was good and he and he just had to select form basically he didn't have a preconceived idea of a four-year plan because he didn't have the time so his his team selection just purely went on form whereas maybe even with your experiences between 2008 and 11 you can tell us if there was well, maybe if you don't want to name names but maybe you hung on to one or two players a bit too long could that perhaps have 
in an odd way worked for Rossi? Certainly, I think I think you summed it up really well. Um, I think it was more by by default than it was by design. Sure, because obviously, sure. you know, Rossi wasn't to know that he was going to get appointed and brought back from Munster. Mm. Um, and I think when he did, he set about very quickly in 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 having to orchestrate that the that the squad were going to be ready to go to Rugby World Cup. Um, you know, the four four year thing also can be a bit of a fallacy. You know, I mean. I think it was Jake. I mean, you would know better than me. Um, I think it was Jake who, who said, made some comment a handful of years ago that you actually only need three months in a build-up to a Rugby World Cup. Yeah, was I seem it, to remember that. Not so, to me, he made it, but yeah, I seem to remember something that. Something along those lines. Mm. And I mean, really, when you think about it, if you take it like a Tier 2 team like ourselves, who, with respect, were never going to win the Rugby World Cup, just wanted to go there and, you know, fire a few shots. If you consider it, I mean, I I had had the team together for as long as I possibly could through the whole of 2018, we had a we had a pretty successful 2018. But the reality was, you know, the squad that I was going to get was, I was only starting to think about it genuinely who was going to be available from June because you take fitness of the players into consideration and and to a lesser degree form. But, you know, if a player's been out for six months and he's one of your star players, you've got to really think about whether you're going to take him yeah. because he's going to be able to form. So I think that's where Russi did a very, very good job. Um, as, as I say... I, I think your summation is very right, but I think it was more by default than it yeah. was by design. But, you know, there were other things that, that Rusty got right. I mean, whether, whether one out there does or does not agree with it, you know, he said we need to get the players back playing, from overseas, playing overseas, yeah. you know. So whilst Super Rugby teams were coughing, coughing and spluttering along and not being very successful and possibly the Curry Cup wasn't being brilliant and the teams playing Pro 14 weren't exactly shooting lights out, you know, he went to get his hands on Francis Day and, and Flo and brought them back from overseas who were playing in teams that, that were doing well yeah. in, in their respective leagues. And um, whilst I'm sure in the bigger picture, that's probably not the way you want to go. I mean, right now in a short term, in a two-year period, you got a lot of those things right. And, you know, maybe there was talking about the luck earlier. No, no, none of our Super Rugby sides made the semifinals. So he had an extra couple of weeks with the team. Just to prepare, I mean that could have played it to his hands as well. Considering you know, if if two teams make it, there are benefits to that, obviously. But perhaps in this particular moment in time, he actually just needed more hands-on time with the team rather than one or two teams playing in Super Rugby semi-final. Yeah, and I would un- I would understand why you would say that, and, and you could probably you know probably really just look to to the results in the rugby championship, and you would say that that worked wonders for them, you know, mm. from that point of view. You know, to win the rugby championship in the same year that you win the World Cup is no mean feat. Well, it's never been done until yeah. this year. So, yeah. um, again, uh, I, I, I'm not quite sure the dust has settled on to how unbelievably well Rossi has actually done yeah. and what he has done to, to, to put this group of guys together. And, and as I say, you know, for the fact that they, you know, not only performed when they needed to perform at the, at the top of their game, but also, you know, seemed to do it with a smile in their face. Gary, just um, on the box, last thing. We know now Rusty's stepping upstairs. He's going to take. He's going to step away from a hands-on role on the team. It feels like, oh, are we going to now start a rebuild again, having just won the World Cup? It feels like, you know, when you you guys came in in two thousand eight, you know, a coaching staff from two thousand and seven that had won the World Cup was was dismissed or left. You guys had to kind of start again. Are we going down that road again this year, or do you think it's just a seamless continuation of the Rusty way? Look, I think if Rusty were to stay in charge, that would be seamless. I mm-hmm. think that 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 would be totally. seamless. Yeah. Um, I don't think Rusty will allow it to to, however, be as extreme as it was when the entire coaching staff move out and you're starting from scratch again. Um, I'm quite sure. I mean, I 
I'm not in the cold face of it anymore, um, and I have no inside information. But if Jacques were to take over, Jacques and Rassi are joined at the hip. They yeah. philosophically aligned. Their work ethic is the same. They understand the game the same way. Um, Jacques does so much of the hands-on coaching already because of the areas that he covers his defense and kicking game. And, you know, he does so much opposition analysis. He knows what's going on so well. So that would be seamless. Um, if you just see the occurrences that are going around, if Matt Proudfoot does stay on, there's not going to be a change. Sticks will definitely stay on. Um, I think he's done a fantastic job. But if Matt doesn't stay on, you know, unfortunately, the occurrences in Paris recently have meant that Peter de Villiers is available, who Russi's worked with very well before. So you could very well see Peter de Villiers coming back into the mix. And so I think it'll be pretty seamless. I think it'll mm. be very seamless. I think with Russi being director of rugby, you know, the philosophy, the way they're going to train, the way they're going to do things will, will pretty much stay the same. Um, but, you know, you can also start to see, you know, possibly our junior teams now starting to step up to the plate and well, start becoming I mean, under the- 20 champions in the, in the same cycle that we will champions. And, th- and that's going to start to be powerful. Well, I just looked at the junior box this year. They had a, they had a bit of an improvement. Um, you know, even though they only came third at the World Championships, they only lost one game, which was the semifinal. Right. Uh, in previous years, they've, they've got to the final but lost two games along the way. Or, you know, or they've, they've come third but lost two or even three games. Uh, so there seemed to be a little bit of an uptick. They beat New Zealand, for instance, this year at the Junior World Champs, which is always a benchmark game. doesn't matter, you know... W- w- so, so maybe the Rassi effect is starting to come through at a lower level. I mean, the sevens team is qualified for the Olympics. I know that's not really in the 15s realm, but the whole program looks to be getting steady. Well, again, uh, um, we have generally short memories when it comes to sport. But I mean, before Rassi went to Munster, you know, that is what he did. He was the director. Yeah. Of he, had no, he had no role with the men's 15s team, the Springboks, but he did everything else, putting the Moby units into place and 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 helping develop the junior structures and and there you saw um some really good results coming through so the likes of you know brilliant guys like louis kun et al are still are still involved in in those structures you yeah. know and with rassi now having his eye on on both uh, the springboks and uh, trusting jacques as, a, as as you know as as well as he can i mean because of his, of his history with jacques um, and he, he'll be comfortable to let Jacques go off with the team. But also working on the junior structures and the Craven Week structures and the SA Under-20 structures, you know, if those start becoming strong and those teams are doing well, you know, then you're going to start, I think you're going to start to see an upturn of, of, of those kids who make those teams staying in South Africa and wanting to play um, Super Rugby because the aspirations to play for the Springboks in a couple of years' time. That's fantastic. Gary, lastly, just in your own coaching career, you've had such a long 20-odd-year uh, coaching Career, what's been the highlight for you, or highlights? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's such an interesting question that Craig. I'm, I'm, I get asked it a lot of times. I mean, obviously, our job is to win trophies, you know. And in the times we've been able to to do things that have been successful, have been, you know, tremendously, tremendously fulfilling. But you know, I've, I've also chosen to take a slightly different path than most conventional co- coaches, you know. After the 2011 World Cup, um, I had been appointed to go to Bath, and that appointment was only going to start in the July. And and in the interim, I decided I wanted to go and help Newcastle, who were nine points clear at the bottom of the table, you know, and help them try and avoid relegation. And you know, did the same. Didn't with, you guys win five out of seven games or something? It was a, it was a good finish to the season. Yeah, there, yeah, I think there were nine games left, and I think the team won seven out of the nine. You know, so wow. um, and that's hugely encouraging. You know, that I mean, that's very satisfying when you. When you can go to a group of go, and I mean it's interesting, you know, the back row in that in that year 
of of Newcastle getting relegated all those years ago was Mark Wilson, who's mm, playing for playing England at the England. moment, uh, Ali Hogg, and Will Welsh. And that's still the back row that plays for Newcastle today with Mark Wilson being a starter in the England team, you know. And you would have, Mickey Youngs was playing then. You know, Mickey Youngs has played England and England A on a number of occasions. So it's, it, it, I get a huge amount of satisfaction from seeing the potential of a group meet their potential. You know, mm. that, that's very satisfying for me. Um, but obviously wins and losses is, is, yeah, is sure. what, we, what, what we get employed and keep our jobs about. But, you know, I've had a lot of, a lot of great times. You know, I had a, an amazing time with Brendan when we were at London Irish together. And Brendan's done some work with me at the US and will continue to do so, I really hope. And he's, a, he's, a, he's just a, a ball of energy and I, I love learning from him. Uh, we had a fantastic time with Rassi at the Stormers. We, yeah, we had a good run at the Stormers with Rassi. And then obviously he came in in 2011 and was our, was our consultant. And, you know, how we've ever lost that 2011. Well, I was actually going to ask you, have was, you ever forgiven Bryce Lawrence? <laughs> uh, I think it's just healthy to forgive and move on in life. <laughs> have you seen him since? Have you I have, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, I saw him in a, in a, in a change room in Japan and, and we had some words that were exchanged. But, yeah, I mean, uh, that was unfortunate. But, you know, I, I, I believe even, even, even that, benefit, that 2011 would have been a benefit for us. You know, there would have been things we learned there. Um, talking about players playing who are maybe just past their sell-by date. What, did we do that? I, I don't know. In the post-Rugby World Cup wrap-up, you know, those questions would have been asked. And I'm sure, you know, a guy like Rossi being around and being as astute as he is, he would, he would not have made those mistakes again. And I think he, we can attest to the fact that he hasn't done that. So, um, yeah, I've, I've, I've been very blessed. You know, is is, that, is that the bitterest memory, though? Because it felt, I was at that World Cup, it felt like that team had the potential to win the World Cup. You know, and maybe that day you could have maybe helped yourselves more and wasn't just Bryce. But the point being, had you won that game, did you feel like that team could have gone on to win the World Cup? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I, I, I mean, you, you know, being a rugby coach with an oval ball and a, a little yellow man running in the middle, you know, nothing's ever going to be guaranteed. You never, ever know. You can't make those kind of predictions. But in, in terms of the mindset, in terms of the hunger, in terms of, uh, the preparation, and uh, I, if I were to look back at it now and I were to do a due diligence on it, th th there's there's almost nothing. There will always be something, but there's almost nothing I think we could have done better in the prep under Peter. Um, and, I mean, what we did with a group with Jacques and Rassi leaving them in Rustenburg when we took a B team and got hammered in the media for taking them to the Tri-Nations, um, and the preparation that we had with our A team that actually ended up going to the Rugby World Cup there's almost nothing I think we could have done better. You know, maybe along the way, one or two small things, but nothing that would have affected the outcome. And I think we would have gone all the way. Gary Gold, it's been a great pleasure and good luck with the USA Rugby. Let's hope that they are forced in the next uh, World Cup and uh, hopefully we'll have you on in the future talking about uh, more sport. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for the time. And this weekend, we're watching APSA Premiership without Kaiser Chiefs and Mamelodi Sundowns in action, and it gives the likes of Supersport United the chance to narrow that gap at the top of the table. The Alfred Dunhill Championship at Leopard Creek kicks off the 2020 European Tour season, just a week after the 2019 season ending in Dubai. And don't forget to sign up for the Maverick Sports newsletter and become a daily Maverick insider and support quality, independent journalism. I'm Craig Ray. Thanks for joining us on the Maverick Sports Podcast this week.